ready to achieve great heights, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Power Your Performance, the podcast where we dive deep with leaders in the gaming world and beyond and learn the techniques they use to power their lives. I am your host, Gary Kleinman. Mike Otten, welcome to Power Your Performance. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Gary. It's good to have you. A uh, businessman extraordinaire across uh, a lot of sports and esports and gaming and digital and things that everybody's interested in. But because we had a, a short conversation just now, I'm going to ask you a question to kick this off that has nothing to do with anything. What was your first concert ever? Oh, great question. So it was Elton John at what was then called the Air Canada Center, I believe, in, in Toronto. Oh, that's so I, funny. You and I haven't delved deep, but I have the musical taste of a, of a 65 to 70 year old. Uh, well, it's uh, John, Neil Young, the Beatles, Zeppelin, et cetera. So that was my first show. Well, you know what? That was mine too. But many years <laughs> earlier when when he uh, did your song at the Troubadour in, in West Hollywood. Oh, wow. And that's before yeah. it got into grunge and whatever else it got into. Those were the days of James Taylor and Carly Simon and Don McLean and Hall and & Oates. Jackson and, Brown and, oh, yeah, you, you those, were right there in the mix. I, I, I was I at that, that was, that was date night. Those were, <laughs> those were all date nights there, which would probably be interesting for another conversation in a different podcast. But we won't go there. Now that we know that you're an old soul from music, we'll get into how you get into the cutting edge, ultimately, of esports. So NYU, we'll start with college and law school. You, you left, you're Canadian, Dead. and then you, went, <laughs> then you went to school in uh, New York. I did. So I, I, I was trained academically as an economist, uh, did my undergrad and master's in economics in Canada, worked actually for three years for our former prime minister as, a, as an economist and a policy analyst in Ottawa, Ontario, decided that uh, the bureaucratic life wasn't for me. And so I, I abandoned, uh, abandoned ship and headed to Manhattan to attend NYU. In my in my mid twenties, and actually did my MBA at NYU. So that was uh, with with the understanding or the or the strategy to get into the the sports and entertainment industry. So where did the passion for sports come from? Was that as a kid engaging in sports? Was it family sports? Where was that? Yeah, great question. We we grew up as sort of a, a a fairly athletic family. I wouldn't say I necessarily fall into that bucket, but grew up. Grew up playing hockey, basketball, soccer, football, lacrosse, et cetera. And I was actually a, a fairly serious skier for many years, taught, taught skiing, raced, all that. And But I actually, from sort of the age of 13, 14, became increasingly interested in the business side of sports, how salary caps operate, how teams monetize, how they scale their model to grow valuations for ownership. And so I was someone that always loved uh, sort of the broadcast and theater of sports, but was actually really from before the high school years, more interested in, in the commercial side of it. And so I was sitting there in, in Ottawa working, you know, as an economist and I was 23, 24 years old and it hit me that I could do this for a living. And so where better to, to start your career if you want to be in the, the sports entertainment industry? I thought, do we go Palo Alto, Stanford? Do we go Harvard? Do we go NYU? And, and as it was uh, sort of very, very succinctly explained to me, you go to New York City, you've got 
at the time, nine professional teams, all the agencies, all the league offices, the headquarters for every major brand partner are there. And so you're not going to find uh, many cities where you have uh, more opportunity for internships and career expansions. So that was my rationale behind um, heading to Manhattan in, in my mid-20s. And it, and it obviously works. So you're in Manhattan in your mid-20s and far different cry than Ottawa. Oh, <laughs> understatement of the year right there, Gary. Yeah, it's, uh, Ottawa, Ottawa is lovely, but it's a sleepy bureaucratic town. <laughs> yeah, I've always said that everybody should do a stint in New York. It's kind, it's kind of like doing time, and then you get probation and you get That's out. Exactly. <laughs> you, yeah, you you go in, you jump in the deep end, and you you're either going to sink to the bottom in a hurry, or or you're going to sort of rise uh, to the top, or or somewhere near there with with the tide. And so I thought that my my best training i always joke the first two years i had in new york i i was the guy you know running around getting coffees for executives at madison square garden or sportsnet new york which at the time owned the distribution rights for the new york mats and the jets and and uh the former big east conference and so i i was uh very much at the bottom of the food chain learning from you know some of the more seasoned uh individuals globally in the industry so it was uh invaluable experience and as i'm sure you can imagine gary also made some great connects that you yeah. know I've ended up doing business with to this day. Yeah, I mean that's that that's the value to 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 running coffee. So you get that first job not uh family related, you just go knock on doors and and I ask cuz there's so many people that want to be in esports and gaming and sports and they go but I don't know anybody. So your story is you get there and you're running coffee and you build up almost like the mailroom in the theatrical agencies. Is that what you did? You ba- you banged on doors? That's a fair assessment. Yeah, my my family, I don't come from a, sort of a family that has pedigree in the space. And so unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to pull on the lever of, of nepotism the way some individuals are fortunate enough to do, but uh, which is fine. And so, uh, yeah, it was it was essentially just grinding it out and taking whatever volunteer internship opportunities I could with large organizations to, to sort of have a, a front row seat to the inner workings of how you distribute broadcasts, how you create content, how you scale the monetization side. And then sort of surely in the hockey world, um, you know, started my career at the New York Rangers. I mean, Glenn Saylor, who has five Stanley Cups under his belt, learning about things like player evaluation, salary arbitration, trades, and, and how you manage a salary cap to build an effective an effective hockey team. So, so yeah, for I how was, long were you running coffee? Or, or maybe I can ask you, how many cups did you have to run before <laughs> you got to do something substantive? Well, let's let's call it let's call it uh, a thousand cups over, over a six month window. Let's ballpark it. And maybe that's the way that they should do that from internships. It's, it's it's not by the number of people you support or the years you're there, but the number of cups of coffee you've run or the number of dozens of donuts that you've had to carry down the hall. Uh, well, Mike Cotton Business Operations, New York Rangers, thousand cups of coffee, uh, twenty five hundred Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, I think that plays. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it it's certainly we can all relate to to having to do that and then the first time you have to do something substantive where you just like head over heels going oh this is everything i thought it was going to be it's cool and it's wonderful so a great question Uh, on the so i I sort of did two things in new york in an internship capacity so i've already mentioned sportsnet new york which was very much 
original content creation, broadcast, and distribution focused. Right. Um, and and to be fully transparent, part of the reason I I did that, as well as working, you know, at the Rangers, I also had time at Major League Soccer and corporate communications on Fifth Avenue. And my my rationale there was that I wanted to get as much experience in a diverse or an eclectic range of fields to decide what I wanted to do. And so, didn't particularly love sort of what the broadcast pre-production, post-production, and content creation from scratch. I, I didn't sort of love that world. However, to answer your question, when, when I got to sort of working in hockey and actually creating studies and reports uh, to evaluate players and then sort of watching those reports inform trades or signings, I was sort of through the roof, uh, metaphorically speaking. That was just a ton of fun. And, and for context, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I actually started, the way I got into hockey is I created 123 booklets for every NFL, NHL, NBA, and Major League Baseball team. And what I did for each team is I wrote up uh, three to four analytics studies to evaluate impending, restricted, or unrestricted free agents, depending on the sport. And I sent them directly to the either the head of operations, the general manager, the president of the company. And out of the 123, I think about 12 got back to me. About half of those were thanks for the work, you know, keep going, but you know, we're not going to be creating a job for you. And then another half a dozen led to more substantive conversations around whether or not that's fascinating. I mean, that's just a great example to, to those that are uh, listening and or watching that you've got to be creative that, you know, and the conversations that I have with so many people looking for jobs is, well, they want a job. And then I think what you have to showcase, which you obviously did then and you continue, which we'll get into, is you showed the prospective teams value. And it wasn't just, I want a job because I like sports and I'm Canadian, so I have to like hockey. What kind of thing? what I'm talking about if we're talking hockey. You nailed it, Gary. And and that was advice I got from some of my uh, mentors at, at New York University was, you know, if you're going to go into a room and say, oh, I've always been so passionate about sports, he's like, just get in line because you're not differentiating yourself. And so he said, put yourselves in the shoe of uh, the assistant general manager, the individual that's running operations on the team side and ask yourself, what is this individual demonstrating or adding in terms of value? And, and if you're not bringing something to the table that's going to make their life easier, uh, you're going to make it sort of challenging to get to get their attention and to really uh, give them any sort of reason to, to interview to create a position as you know in sports they don't really open up positions it's, it's no. usually you create a position for someone if you think that they're going to be uh, additive or, or creative to the business and so yeah you know that that was just me yeah no uh, question it's otherwise better, yeah, yeah otherwise you're a commodity i mean uh, people that love sports are are a commodity you know go go find anyone that does you know everybody wants to work in the front office but it's not easy easy to to get those jobs oh and and one of my favorite lines i remember sitting in in the first class i think it was accounting and and one of the merits not that not to make this an nyu booster podcast i know you love that but we uh, no we're gonna edit that just so you know (laughs) (laughs) one of my favorite what would attract me to the nyu is you're not taught by academics all the all the profs are adjunct with real 
sort of life uh, experience in the space. And so the VP finance is a guy for the New York Yankees is a guy who taught me accounting. And the guy who taught me dynamic ticket pricing was the guy that priced tickets for Madison Square Garden and for the Knicks and the, and the Rangers for years. And so what a lot of them, you know, sort of we were sitting there on the first day of class and they said, what do you want to do with, you know, why you at NYU? Why, why did you come to do grad school in business? And you'd laugh because to your point about half of them were like, yeah, no, I want to be the general manager or the president of a team. I'm just going to skip the 20 years. Where I learned how to do business. <laughs> just give me the reins and I'll be fine. I'll bring you a couple of rings. And he's, he's sort of laughed. He's like, well, there's a bit of an iceberg under the water component where you may need to, where you may need to grind a little bit. And so I, I sort of went at the analytics side intentionally because as, as you all now know my background was in economics and sort of as a stats nerd and i was fortunate with timing where you know I, this is 2012 when i first got into sports and that was just as the analytics movement was starting to gain traction particularly within the national hockey league nfl and nba of course in baseball it was very well established by them but that you know to me given i didn't play any of these sports at a very high level i wasn't like a semi-pro and i had no sort of connections to to fall back on so that was the natural entry point for me was uh, i understand statistics it's it's becoming increasingly uh, a value in the game and so let's give that a shot so my last question for that segment of your life then we'll, we'll, we're going to morph into more of, of gaming and esports did you have a sense that they that the industry wanted you to pay your dues as, as you escalated in organizations 100 percent, especially so Within sports, and I tell this when I'm speaking to folks that are looking to break into the industry, if you're on the business operation side, it's a, it's a little different. You're somewhat more malleable in the sense that the vice president of business operations at the Tampa Bay Lightning faces many of the same issues that the you know the, an individual holding the same title uh, would have with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They're just different levels, different different size of deals, but the business model is not markedly different. While as on the team side. Uh, if you're generally, if you're going to go into hockey, like you're a hockey guy for 30, 40 years, yeah. uh, if you're going to go into football, you're a football guy. And so that was part of my rationale as I, as I got deeper into that hockey world, realizing I'm not sure that I want to be working in analytics or player evaluation for 40, 50 years. That was sort of how I le began to lever out or the reason I should say, because you're bang on, if you're on team side, a lot of these old, well-established guys that have really paid their dues over several decades, they want to see that that you're in it for the long run. You're not just yep. in it to have your name in the headlights. You're really a, a hockey guy in this instance uh, to your core. So, yeah, you're not um, seeing hockey people, analytics, go and work for Major League Soccer or for, for baseball. It's um, very rare. Uh, the only one I can think of that nailed is Paul DePodesta, who, you know, went went from obviously the Oakland A's to the Browns, but it's it's a short list. Yeah, it's, it it's is very a hard, it's, Which very is kind of interesting pick. as the corollary because, and, and it's a, we'll, we'll get to that again in more depth, but gaming in many ways is equally as siloed, certainly by game and by fan base. Right. And, and they stay in if you're Overwatch, you don't care about Call of Duty and, and what have you. So you, you almost, for somebody that wants to get into the industry or somebody that really wants to make a career, you almost have to, once you decide what aspect of the career, you pick that silo and become a veteran in that silo because there's not a lot of uh, transience in that. 
You're exactly right. And, and you do get individuals that, you know, put themselves in a, in a pretty good spot to your point. If you, if you're an individual that understands how to build call of duty franchises, and then you have a dynamic emerging whereby team owners are throwing significant money behind it to, to either franchise or, or build teams and sort of leverage rosters to arbitrage the players to make money. You, if you can position yourselves as, you know, call it one of the 20, 25, 30 people that understand it, you can, you can make a great living. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're and one of those started team side, but uh, as, as I'm sure we'll discuss this today, but I, I I'm very much not a part of the esports organization model anymore, though I do follow it with great interest. And, and so well, so that. right. So it's, it's a great segue. So you go from stick and ball. I mean, really true stick and ball history, right, <laughs> of, you know, hockey, soccer, everybody else. Yeah. And, and then you're in gaming. Where, where, where does where does that transition come from do you no, it's it's so it's it's not quite as as securitous route as it's as you may think so the the bridge there was i went from working in hockey to going into investments and venture capital and so specifically after the new york rangers i i was running a, a team in, in the canadian hockey league out in on the east coast and got a call at the time it was from mark kohan um, who was at the time commissioner of the canadian football league and formerly worked for david stern at the nba and Mark was chairman of a new venture capital firm that specialized in investments, early stage tech focused investments in the sports and media industry. So the idea was that you would invest in businesses whose services could include things like augmented reality, digital, software, wearables. In other words, companies where you thought you could scale the business and you would sell the products into folks like the NBA, the NHL, the NFL. And so I actually took that job and came back to Toronto in February, 2016 to run the VC firm, to run the sports side, I should say, the VC firm. And over four years, um, we grew that to a couple hundred portfolio companies globally. And so the transition was that I had a front row seat to watching some of the most brilliant you know, tech entrepreneurs in North America do a lot of great things and do a lot of things very poorly. And so the, the catalyst was August 2016, the League of Legends was throwing their, their annual championship series, what was then called the Arcana Center, where the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Raptors uh, play. And I think it was August 8th, 9th, and we brought all the NBA and NFL partners uh, to the arena. And frankly, our, our minds were blown. It was 50,000 people through the arena in two days to watch 12 kids sit on a stage and play video games against one another. And I had never seen that before. I had no idea what the breadth of the industry was. And so I remember sitting there with a few VPs at, at the NFL and saying to myself, this is a space I, with which I need to familiarize myself in a, in a hurry. And so very quickly delved into things like the viewership that they were getting at, at the time, the league of legends finals was doing double the viewership of the super bowl as an example. And so what we ended up doing at the firm was, uh, I believe we made eight or nine investments that were focused on esports and gaming in Q4, 2016. We really were early believers in the space and, and put our money where our mouths were. And so the way I ended up getting into the space initially was, was through my role at the firm. And then in early 2017, I was approached by a friend that owned uh, a team in Overwatch League. And so that was my first sort of foyer into let's call it running a, a, an esports business just as myself, like from a startup perspective. And so they brought me in as the chief operating officer. I was responsible for sort of managing financing, raising capital, sorting out where our expenses go to, to grow the team. And the Croft family who owned the New England Patriots, among other assets, ended up 
uh, buying the team and, and rolling it up in, into their assets. It's it's a team that became Boston Uprising, which is still uh, one of the Overwatch League teams uh, to this day. So that was my my initial. Entry. So, but the first investments when you're working for the VC firm and they got the 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 eight investments in their portfolio, none of that was game or team related. Was it on the periphery? All exactly. all periphery. And what kind of early peripheries were they looking at because that at that point was pretty early and distribution was still you know really twitch more so than anywhere else and so it was really pre what you're seeing today in in significant ways so what kind of things were they looking at that thought well, all right, gaming is huge, and your experience is the same as mine. The first esports experience I had was the Oakland Coliseum, and if you close your eyes, you're at an NBA game, except for the fact that they're massive video screens, and they're buying merch, and mom and dad are there with the kids and screaming and yelling, and you're sitting going, I don't know what they're really screaming at because I didn't understand the oh. game. But uh, So, so what was yeah. the periphery that they were looking at as a growth industry? No, that's and it's funny. You literally uh, use the exact same verbiage we would, which is we don't want to bet on esports orgs or titles as a VC firm because we we perceive it to be risky, given we're not sure you know what the shelf life in terms of popularity of these titles or these games could be. Which which I know you you and I see eye to eye right. on. Yes. And so what we would say is let's invest in peripheral assets. That was always the company line. So one uh, company that we invested in measured and delivered backend analytics for Twitch. Twitch actually acquired them. So that was a very early company that essentially <laughs> would provide enrich data as as initially a partner of Twitch and then Twitch just said, yeah, you know, this, this makes sense. We'll wrap you into the company. We also had uh, a couple of other business that measured software tools on the back end for Activision Blizzard. Okay. Um, they would essentially ensure that various softwares were compatible with, with their ecosystems, not the sexiest, but an effective, those were the two exits we had. We also had one analytics um, marketplace that didn't end up panning out, but I, I still think it was a good idea, but it was too early, where they essentially had developed some fairly sophisticated tools to actually measure and predict talent in terms of like who was going to be an emerging talent within Call of Duty or League of Legends or Dota 2. And the tools are actually quite effective. However, in 2016-17, salaries hadn't caught up where, you know, if you did really well on arbitrage and a salary, you might have got the player for 25 and flipped it for 50. They weren't making, you know, well right. into six figures or even seven figures yet. So the business was just, a, if, if that came around 2019, 20, I think they would have done quite well. But that's a long-winded way of saying we, we really were trying to focus on, on tech businesses that had an analytics or a software component that could integrate into the back end of established publishers or streaming services. That was really what we thought the bread and butter what was. And, and, and it was probably, as you just said, just too premature because... Now, I mean, it's all about data and analytics and uh, in everything, obviously, but certainly, certainly in gaming and esports, it is, you know, you you see the multiples on the data and the analytics and what have you, and much more so than on the team and the IP and the games and the transient nature of of the games themselves. So that Mm -hmm. was actually kind of fascinating then to look at the the type of data that was available, which is interesting to me because there were probably a lot of data and nobody wanted it. Nobody knew what to do with it. Uh, well, so I, I was going to say it was two buckets. It was, I don't understand what the hell's going on here. Or number two, 
I really like what the data is telling me, but I don't know how to commercialize or monetize yeah. it yet. Revenue streams, you know, this is like pre-franchising when NFL owners were first getting together to, to go into Overwatch League with Kraft and Kroenke and Steven Ross and so on. And at the time, there were these massive audiences. And that's sort of, I, I, I have always argued, is what initially got stakeholders and, and prominent stakeholders like NFL owners interested in, in, in esports and gaming as they saw the power of the audience. However, in these early days, I, I don't think they had sort of uh, sophisticated their model around how they can monetize. So for instance, these 200 million eyeballs are getting for League of Legends. At the time, they're just paying a small subscription fee, watching on Twitch and going on their way. They're right. not commercializing, they're not helping brands activate. And so you kind of nailed it, Gary, where we had all this great data. And <laughs> a lot of the sponsors and corporate partners just had no idea how to leverage it or, or how to put it to work. Yeah, I guess it's that old phrase, you know, you, you had a great party, but nobody came, right? <laughs> <laughs> and just nobody showed up. It was a fun party. <laughs> it was a great that. party if you were the three people that were present. Um, and, and I was going to say, or we had nine investments, two exits, and seven failed. So it depends on which party you were at, but the I, two were great. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which is interesting. And then you go and you run an esports organization no did you like it was it what you thought it was gonna be i actually had a great time i i, I so i have the most stories from running it was called toronto esports at the time and became boston uprising i i, I had a blast i i thought it was because you know it, it was such I guess such a new and emerging space that was just so on top. I'd never been at the forefront of something quite so nascent before. Right. And so at the time, you know, I was learning about the team house model that North America had imported from South Korea, which, you know, and I kind of laugh because we're sitting here in 2017-18 and we had a couple of players that we had brought over from South Korea to play on our team. And they're, and they're telling me, like, we've been talking about esports like this for 15, 20 years. Yeah. Like, you guys are not even close to caught up to us, which just really opened my eyes to, to the global opportunity of, of the industry. But we actually got a team house in North Toronto. We had six players. We, of course, as you know, started an Overwatch League and we had a staff of 48. And our staff, so I mean, we're talking an eight to one ratio. That's bigger than the front office of the New York Rangers, just for contact. So I'm sitting here thinking to myself, Hold on, this team that that you know Jimmy Dolan owns is probably worth I don't know, let's call it 1.5 or 6 billion. And our our front office was about oh man, half the size of what we had at Toronto Esports between nutritionists, videographers, scouts, coaches, individuals that that would sort of like procure sponsorships for the players. So I loved it because I just thought it was absolutely wild. Like my brain almost couldn't compute the speed at which this, we were expanding. And we also broke a lot of eggs along the way. You know, we initially Shopify actually offered to acquire us, one of the founders. And on Ford, and this is when they were trading around a dollar, 180 a share. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I, you know, I, I thought it was a great deal. And more importantly, I said, once Shopify acquires you, we can do whatever we want. Right. Like that, and they can get us a franchise spot and we can be the Toronto team for $20 million. Right. And unfortunately, one of the co-founders thought that the offer was light and we didn't end up going forward with it, which, which to this day, I think is a mistake. But it was it was such a great learning experience to go through that process of looking at which style of stakeholders want to own a team. So, I mean, we have Shopify, the, uh, which, you know, at the height of COVID was the largest Canadian company in the world, larger than Royal Bank of Canada. Wow. And so you, you see, why are they trying to buy a team? Why would an NFL owner want to own a team? And so that was interesting for me from someone that came from the traditional sports industry, because I'm sitting there going, yeah, if you're the Kraft family, I, I get why you'd want to own a team that, you know, is comprised of, 
uh, six guys that are, are watched mostly by, you know, let's call it 12 to 34 year olds. So if you're the Patriots or the Celtics or whatever, where most of your fan base is skews a little bit into the millennial and boomer demographics, that that's a great addition to, to wrap in for your sponsors and your advertisers. And so I had a blast just watching everything unfold and can't say that, you know, every decision we made was, was the right one, but no, it was a, the perfect entry point into the space for, for a newbie like me. Okay. So you, you leave there. Right. And you yeah, go, I, is I, that when you I, started Rumble right after that? That's exactly right. You okay. know, yeah. So I, I left Toronto Esports in, let's call it Q2 2018, if I recall. I think it was May. Okay. And then I was, I was connected to uh, Len Asper. And Len at the time, and, and still, I should say, is, is the chairman and CEO of Anthem Sports Entertainment, very prominent, um, one of the most prominent sort of Canadian business families really of all time. And Len, you know, was being pitched with several deals in gaming. He, he like me, I sort of didn't love how capital intensive the team side was and understood, you know, really... I think in a granular capacity, what an agency model looks like in terms of staffing agents, representing players, taking commissions. And so Len initially came to me under the auspices of, do we want to sort of run a gaming agency under Anthem? And then he and I just decided, why don't we just start our own from scratch? And so I, I want to say it was summer 2018, the two of us just founded Rumble Gaming and you know built out a modest client list, started to close a few deals, pu- pulling some revenue in through the commissions therein, and then acquired a great group of guys called MKM Group, founded by uh, Evan Cubis and Josh Marcus. Right. And, and they were actually, it's a fascinating story. They were... Um, really a boutique law firm that was providing legal services right. to the game community, which, which is, you know, Gary, I mean, when you're talking about most of the players are coming from overseas or from other countries, they need visas, they need to sort out how to head into the country. And so they had developed this really interesting niche around ensuring that they could offer those services. But in doing so, they had backed into about 230 clients, but they didn't uh, know how to sort of commercialize them in the sense that they didn't come from a brand side or an entertainment side. And so Len and I said, why don't we just buy you and we'll wrap you into Rumble. We'll, we'll sell sort of brand deals against the audience. You guys continue to be lawyers and off we go. And that was sort of my, my second gaming business, which is still uh, still in operations today. So, you know, and then, and then we'll get we'll get into what you're doing now shortly because they're completely different, right? So you 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 went from you know statistics, yeah. economics, and stick and ball, and then you get into you know VC world um, on the data analytics side, and then you trip kind of into running you know the esports team, and you go well, no. and and we've had this conversation uh, where you're saying you know there's not a lot of there there to a certain extent in the operation of an esports team. It's difficult at best. Yeah. Um, and then you go, well, where, where's the crux of the sports world? It's it's kind of in the talent. I mean, it's it's in the IP, obviously, because without the IP, there's no game. But the but the publishers yeah. own that uh, as a fiefdom that they don't share dogmatically. Mm-hmm. So the rest of it's really the players. And, and the value in the players is brand association. Because I don't believe, and, and you can correct me, and I would love somebody to show me that, that – for the most part, the the players don't have big fan bases, right? Yeah. I, I mean, they're I, a couple. They, but, there are certainly a couple, but yeah, like Bjergsen or whatever. But right. how I would characterize the the economics of, of like professional esports players is 
not dissimilar, frankly, from from traditional sports in like let's call it like mid seventies to early eighties, where broadcast like the the biggest difference right now between gaming and sports is you don't have lucrative broadcast rights underpinning the industry, right? right? So you are very overly reliant from a business perspective on sponsorship, advertising, and and, and smaller revenue streams like food and beverage and merch and ticketing for live events and so on. And so there's very, similar to, to traditional sports in the 70s and early 80s, there's very little middle class. And what I mean is the vast, vast, vast majority of professional gamers don't make a ton of money on their base salary from teams or are underpaid. However, they derive most of their income from from sponsorships that they bring in and gain their audience, with the exception, of course, of some massive stars in gaming that are making, you know, we had we had right. one kid, for instance, we represented at Rumble Gaming, 16 years old. He was making about 350,000 USD a month yep. just in sponsorships. And so he guys like that, and and I mean, these are individuals that are coming to me like, do I go to do I go to college? And I was like, well. <laughs> No, be, like that, that's a question for your parents, not me. But no, I, I'm going to tell you right now that you, you, you're going to have to be an executive, at like an investment bank, to make this kind of dough again. So you're going to have to think about it. But yeah, it it, it certainly, I would argue, t- t- teaches you a lot about the economics in terms of player salaries. It is extremely fragmented, and 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 there is a large chasm at the moment. Right. So if if I look at your journey and and the changes and knowing where you are today. Uh, is where you chose to be today because that's really where the growth and the monetization really is. And everything else that you did, obviously, is great background and support for what you're doing today with Game Lancer. But is it because your history, you can see from the inside out and going, I don't really want to spend my career in trying to figure out you know, where the payday is, so to speak, and where is the longevity? And then you find the gap now, and and I've always said, and I've said this to you, and then you're going to tell me about Game Lancer, is that it's easy to find a gap in the market. It's really yeah. difficult to find the market in the gap. And I always wonder if, if, you know, esports and gaming is a huge gap in the market, but where is that market in the gap? And it takes me wow. to, to Game Lancer. <laughs> and it's funny, Gary. So my saying when I was running the VC firm was, are you addressing a systemic problem in the market or are you creating one? Which is a very, just a different way of saying what you just said. Yeah. And, and a lot of companies are just creating an issue where it's right. like, uh, hey, you ever think, uh, you know, have you ever been consuming content and you need to do this? And my answer is absolutely not. You're, uh, you're just creating a problem. But to answer your question, yes. I, I, you know, being on the inside of an esports org and team side and watching the franchising models explode and then implode a little bit in recent years, running an agency model, Rumble, for instance, is a phenomenal lifestyle business, a little challenging as it relates to sort of like a public vehicle or venture backable um, vehicle. And so what, what I've identified in Game Lancer uh, and by virtue of the fact that we're a publicly traded company is that I think we've, we've correctly identified a space where um, we can achieve scalability and, and sort of satisfy our fiduciary duty to shareholders. So yeah, that's a very long-winded way of saying I think you nailed it. That's, that's exactly so what for, for those that don't know, what is the core proposition at Game Lancer? So Game Lancer is the largest Gen Z and millennial network on social media. We specifically focus um, on TikTok, Snapchat, and Instagram. We have 27 owned and operated channels with a little over 28 million followers and subscribers. And so the business model therein is very simple. We sell direct media and advertising deals against the audience. 
We have a programmatic advertising offer where we uh, essentially fill a rate card for prospective partners. And then we have a recurring revenue stream with our partner at Snapchat, whereby uh, they essentially license games that we develop on a 50-50 rep share. So those are the three revenue buckets. But to get into the net, the, the value really is, is in direct media deals against the network. And so when I said we have 28 million followers and subscribers, those are comprised um, largely of individuals in Canada and the United States. Actually, over half of our users in the, are in the United States. We also have a very large um, digital footprint in the UK and then Australia. And so the reason we acquired, we actually ended up acquiring Game Lancer in the first quarter of 2022. And the rationale there was, uh, as you now know, English speaking, affluent countries with high disposable incomes, high likelihood to convert for the brands that we're partnered with. And so, you know, the beauty in owning a network as well, comprised of, of Gen Zers or individuals 12 to 26, is that, you know, when I whether I'm going out speaking to one of our partners that sells electronics or direct-to-consumer products, like monitors or gamer chairs or headphones, or I'm speaking to a financial institution looking to acquire retail banking customers, they all want to tap into and access that demographic of let's call it 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds, where what they're doing is developing their brand affinity and their consumer preferences for the next 30, 40, 45 years. And so that's the beauty is we, we now are in a place where we can work on what you and I would call endemic brands, where we, is really our bread and butter working with partners in retail and, and consumer electronics, et cetera. But we also work with insurance companies and banks and credit cards. Right. But, but, the, but the core asset is not esports and competitive gaming. It's it's content in and around the space. So it's more about entertainment gaming based, right, than it is about competition, picking which game is going to be the most professional, competitive, biggest scale, whatever it is. It it, it is it's just enjoyable, entertaining content around a yep. niche which, which with, with integrated brands uh, yes yeah yeah without a doubt with integrated brand which which is fascinating because if you as kind of an outsider looking in and understanding the inside looking out is if i look at the arc of all the things that you've done somewhere there's a there's a conclusion in in your professional direction that says i want to be in the storytelling entertainment business of individual creators and i am i am not putting a not placing a bet on uh gaming per se on the competitive level team or otherwise i think that's very well said <laughs> and so our, our our entire value prop in terms of when we generate a campaign so whether we're working with let's say samsung or belkin or royal bank of canada it's all about storytelling and making it compelling such that we're generating content and embedding this experience with the brand right into the content to encourage our users and our fans to convert. So, and what the, the part of the company, uh, Gary, that does that really well is Joybox Media. And Joybox Media was, was our third acquisition and the one we made right before Game Lancer. And Joybox does essentially all of our original content production, our storyboarding, our scripting. And so what they'll do is front to back, take all the heavy lifting on the client, they just need to go to Samsung as an example and say, cool, you want to sell monitors. 
Walk me through how you want to geofence. Which style of households and users do you want? What kind of uh, numbers do you want to see on impressions, views, click-throughs? And then most importantly, talk about how much product you want to use. And then what I do uh, as a chief operator and, and my business partner, John Dwyer, who I co-founded the business with, is we bake in a, a healthy amount of margin, uh, of course, to sustain and scale the business, and we work backwards. And so we'll figure out how do we want to, you know, how are we going to tell the story such that's compelling to the appropriate perspective group of, of buyers or acquirers for these assets and then how are we going to distribute it across game lancer so it hits that targeted audience no i love it and and i think the takeaway because we're just about out of time unfortunately is is that your arc of experience in in the the world of gaming has come to the the fact that it is about entertainment and and that's what most of the gaming audiences that they're gamers and it may well be that gamers just like to game and and everything else that the industry seems to want to create in many respects is what the industry wants to create but maybe isn't what the audience really wants to see or participate in you're so. preaching to the converted in that, in that <laughs> respect i've always said you know we we had this interest in dynamic where folks in the traditional sports industry poured into gaming in the mid 2010s and they just tried to import a business model they had used in, in right. their industry for 40 45 years Great and point. it didn't resonate it wasn't authentic and what what we get out with all our campaigns is the last thing i want to do when i'm advertising a product to our fans is pull them out of their experience i want it to be fully integrated into their experience such that they're not being annoyed. I'm not spamming them. They're not getting pop-ups, but this is something where I'm going to have, for instance, an NBA player like Fred Van Vliet, who is one of our partners using the Samsung products in a stream talking about, you know, how they are to use being very honest with his community and his millions of followers. And then the consumer can make a decision as to whether based on what they say, they, yeah. they, they want to convert and purchase it. And we find that approach just to be considerably more effective than trying to cram it down their throat to your point. I appreciate you uh, sharing your journey, especially from the standpoint that you, you did it from uh, the trenches and and not what a lot of people do in the industry that says, well, I think this is going to work. You know I will continue to be watching what you do, and I will see you when you uh, finally get to L.A. And I I, uh, and thanks for the time. It's always good to see thanks, you. Thanks, Greg. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks, thanks so much, Rob. You stay well. Okay. You too. See you, buddy. Right. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the MAP Esports Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Please be sure to leave us a review and follow us on your favorite podcast player.